We have a short sermon text this morning, um, and the reason is because we have at this church, a, what we try to have is a, a Trinitarian preaching schedule. So in the fall, we pick an Old Testament book, and we broadly ask the question, who is God? And then in the winter, we pick one of the Gospels, and we ask the question, who is Jesus? And then in the spring and the summer, we look at the epistles and we ask the question, how do you live the Christian life? Uh, what does it look like to live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit? Uh, and so we're going to begin a series today in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that the most important book, the most important epistle in the New Testament is the book of Romans. That Romans contains this very clear explanation of the gospel and its contents. And so it is the most important document we have. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, reflecting on that, a British pastor said that if, if Romans is the most important, Ephesians is the most majestic. That Ephesians is a book that so beautifully describes the gospel that as you dive into these words, as you start to contemplate the language, you get the same sense that Moses had when he saw, came to the burning bush that, that God says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. This is a book that if we read it and comprehend it, we will know God. But that's the issue today if we comprehend it. Before we get into the bulk of this letter, before we start to study more of its content, we need to ask the question, can we comprehend what's going on here? And as I've read through this a few times this week and listened to it a few times this week and read commentaries, one of the things that has really struck me is that we have some major cultural obstacles that are going to prevent us from getting the message here. Uh, I just saw on YouTube, maybe you guys have seen this video before. It was something that Samsung is doing. Uh, it's like a eight, they had an 18-wheeler truck driving down the highway, and they figured out a way to project the image of the road in front of the truck onto the back of the truck so that while people are driving or while they're driving at night, you can see what's in front. You can know if you can pass. It gives you, it, it gives you a view that was previously obstructed. And I feel like that's kind of a picture of where we stand in relation to Ephesians. That we have this large thing blocking us. We have this large obstacle, which is our culture in the United States. And that thing's not going to go away. It's not possible for me to remove our culture. But hopefully, as we talk about this this morning, maybe we can find a way to see around it. Maybe we can find a way to see what God is trying to communicate to us through this book. And so here's what we're going to do. First of all, I want to tell you quickly what this book is about, what its main message is, tell you some details. And then I want to ask the question, what is it that obstructs our ability to understand that message? And then after that, what will overcome the obstacle? So what's this book about? What's the message? Then what is obstructing us from understanding that message? And finally, how can we get there? How can we understand? How can we overcome that obstacle? Okay, so really quickly, details about the book. Um, Ephesians is a letter. It's a letter written to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a wealthy port city in the Roman part of Asia. So it was an area called Asia Minor. Um, and Ephesus had some things in common 
with Boston. It was a, a well-known city. It was a city that was a hub of education. But those facts, you're not going to learn from reading the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, weirdly, doesn't talk about a lot of specifics about the audience Paul's writing to. In fact, the very earliest manuscripts, these first verses just say, to the church in blank. And there's nothing there. Um, now, we have a lot of copies that do say Ephesians. We don't have any copies that say anything other than Ephesians. But what most scholars assume is that this letter was actually written to a more broad audience than just that one church. That it was a letter that was circulated around the area of Ephesus. And so it speaks to the whole church. It speaks broadly to even to us today. So um, this is a letter. It was a letter written to a lot of Christians. And it was a letter that was written by Paul. Amazingly, we have never preached on one of Paul's letters at this church. Now, we haven't been around that long, so that's, you know, it's not that bad. But uh, it, Paul did write about a third of the New Testament. So we have managed to get this far without ever preaching through one of Paul's letters. And so and if you're unaware of who Paul is, let me just say, Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a leader amongst the Jews. He was a Roman citizen. And in his early life, he was known as a persecutor of the church. And then you can read about this in Acts. While he was on the road to Damascus, he encountered the risen Christ and had this radical conversion. And ever since that moment, his life was completely changed. He became uh, one of the most powerful advocates for the gospel. He started churches all around Rome. And so Paul calls himself in this letter an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He introduces himself acknowledging the fact that just like every person who ever comes to faith, it was by God's will that his life followed this path. Okay, so then there's one last technical detail. It's a letter. It's written by Paul. And you should know it's probably written around 62 AD. So... That's around 30 years or so since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And to put that in a, a modern time frame, it's about the amount of time ago that the Thriller album was released. Okay, so we remember Thriller, right? Some of us were not born when Thriller came out. Some of us were children when that album came out. And some of us remember it very clearly, right? But I think everyone would agree it's recent history. Compared to the Revolutionary War or something like that, this is something that all happened relatively recently. And so Paul is preaching this message to this new Christian church. And here's the message. The focal point, the thing that he wants, us, wants to communicate, he wants to tell the church about the new reality that the cross brings. The new reality that the cross has created for the church. It's summed up in verse 10 when he says that this is a plan that is accomplished through Christ to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. To unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That means that Christ has, through his death and resurrection, brought an end to all division between the things on earth, us, between people. That he has brought a new reality where there are no longer dividing lines and the place where that gets displayed is in the church. And 
he's brought an end to the division of the heavenly things. He has defeated the powers of evil. He has conquered sin and death, and he has made it possible for all things to be, re, to be reconciled to the living God. And so that's what Paul wants to do. The first few chapters, he is describing that. He wants to tell us how this has come about and what it means. And you know, he does it in a way that will make you weep if you take the time to read it. The first three chapters that we're going to study this summer are really less like a letter and more like a a benediction. They read more like an extended prayer for his people. And once he's finished with this beautiful, uh, poetic speech, then the last three chapters, he talks about the practical stuff. How does this work out in the church? How does this work out in our daily life? Um, And you can look forward to that in 2018, because we're not going to talk about it yet. (laughs) Um, So, the point. How... Uh, The point is, uh, he wants to tell us in this whole book the good news that Christ has united all things in him. That's the message. God has united all things in him. But that's hard for us to see. And so I want us to talk for a minute about what obstructs our ability to understand this message. All right, so let's look at the passage. He says, To the saints in Christ Jesus, grace to you. Grace to you. That's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. This letter is addressed to you. And that you is the second person plural. Our translation, it just says you because that's all we have. But it should really say you all, right? In fact, almost every letter in the New Testament is written in the plural, in the second person plural. But in the West, we... We rarely read the Bible that way. We rarely pick this up in the plural. In English, we don't even have the second person plural, right? We, in Spanish, has ustedes. And maybe we could put in you all every time it says you. Or we could put in y'all if you're from the South. But but typically, we just leave it you, right? We don't know how to write this way. Because we don't know how to think this way. Now, that's not the case for every culture. Some cultures have a much easier time grasping this second-person plural way of thinking. Shame and honor cultures, for instance, have a a much better concept of the interconnectedness of our lives. People in those cultures uh, outside of the United States, those shame and honor cultures, tend to, to recognize that our actions are not simply about ourselves. They know that their Personal actions can affect an entire family. They can, infect, they can affect an entire town. And so people in those cultures are used to making decisions based not just on their own desires, but on the input of their friends and family. They make the decision based on what would be best for their whole community. And when we hear about that stuff, we tend to, to think it's wrong. When we find out about some, some guy who's decided to, to do what his parents want instead of the thing that makes him happiest and most fulfilled, we say, well, that's terrible. Why would you want to live your life that way? In fact, I think uh, every Disney 
movie, like when they're about to write a Disney movie, they have like two basic plots that they start with. And either the kid has dead parents, right? That's half the movies. Or the other half is they have like oppressive parents, oppressive society, and they need to break free of that bondage and, and be taught by the enlightened young hero. Right? That's it. All the movies pretty much fall into those two categories. We, we don't like this narrative. We don't like the concept of interconnectedness. We don't like that because America is a place of individuals. We are the land of opportunity. This is the place where we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and nobody helps us. We do it all by ourselves. This is, you know, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton, it's our most popular Broadway play and, and the songs, you know, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. I'm not going to miss my shot, right? That's what he wants to do. We're all about our, our drive and it's, it's, you know, it's not all that bad, right? In fact, our individualism there are some good things about it. There's, there's some positive things that get accomplished by that sense of drive. But there's a problem. And the problem arises when we get confused. When we start to think that individualism that defines our culture is somehow a Christian value. And it's not. When we start to believe that the way of the exalted individual is the way of God. When this individualism affects the church. And when that happens, we get so used to thinking like individuals that parts of scripture don't even make sense to us anymore. Did you listen to the story that, that uh, we read in the Old Testament reading? It was the story of one man stealing an idol and burying it in his tent, and then God condemning the whole nation for their idolatry. You, if you're wondering what was going on with that story, it's, they went out to war, and they were utterly defeated. And, and, and Joshua is wondering, what the heck, why is this happening? And God says, it's because you have slipped, your nation has slipped into idolatry. And if you keep reading the story, it's just one guy. And we hear that story, and we're kind of blown away. So that's not fair. How can, how can God treat them all with guilt because one person did something wrong? Well, I want you to realize, if that's how you think about it, you are unique in history. You are hearing that story like a 21st century American. But virtually everyone else in the history of the world would have heard that story differently than you do. Because American Christianity, especially, not just Americans, but American Christianity has been profoundly shaped by individualism. Uh, there's a historian, and his name's George Marsden. He's a history professor emeritus now at, at the University of Notre Dame. He wrote a bunch of really interesting books, but one he wrote was called Fundamentalism and American Culture. Sounds like a page turner, right? Uh, you guys can borrow it if you want. Um, in that book, he describes how our version of Christianity, our modern-day American Christianity, how it was radically changed and shaped by this movement in the 1800s, by this point in time when people started teaching this. And here's, how, here's his quote. 
They were teaching that the individual stands alone before God. His choices are decisive. The church, while important as a supportive community, is made up of free individuals. Let me repeat that. He says, the individual stands alone before God. His choices are decisive. The church, while important as a supportive community, is made up of free individuals. Now, if you can comprehend that quote, I think most of us hear it and say, what's weird about that? That's, yeah, that's exactly how it is. The church is, is important, but we're all free individuals here. Well, it's because over a hundred years later, that thought is so deeply ingrained in the way we practice our faith that we can't think about it any other way. Um, there's a, a guy who's a professor at, at Trinity Divinity School, and he says, our current reality is that we have reduced the Christian faith to a personal, private, and individual faith. We think of our relationship to God as something that is between us and God alone. It's private. It's something that we, is between us and him that we deal with off by ourselves. And so if you go and, and talk to the average Christian, if you, if you find a Christian on the street and you say, what does it mean to be spiritually mature? The definition they're going to give you is probably a list of personal traits. They'll tell you, here's what your character is supposed to be like. And then they'll give you a list of, of some personal disciplines. Here's some things that you're supposed to do. But it's all about them. It's all about their personal attributes. But biblically, do you know what the picture of a, a mature Christian is? In the Bible, the picture of a mature Christian is someone who has had their core identity changed. It's someone who no longer sees themselves as an individual, but they see themselves first and foremost as a part of the people of God. Mature Christians see themselves first and foremost as a part of the people of God. And so in Acts, when the church is first formed, here's the picture that, that, that they lay out for us. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And day by day, they attended the temple together and they broke bread in their homes and they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A mature Christian faith in scripture is a corporate faith. A mature faith is a communal faith. It's about this new identity that we have as the people of God. But we don't have that. We tend towards this very individualistic faith, and that's a problem. And for three reasons. I'm just going to list them real quickly. Three reasons why this individualistic faith is a problem. One, it's narcissistic. If you have a Christianity that is about nothing more than your individual salvation... And it's not about God reconciling all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. If you have a Christianity that's only about a prayer that you prayed by yourself one time, and it's not about God's kingdom that he is building, that he has brought you into. If you have a Christianity that has you at the center, 
instead of God at the center, well, that's narcissistic. That is a faith that's all about you. And you know, that's all most of us have ever been taught. That's the problem. That's all most of us ever hear. This thinking has completely shaped and saturated popular Christian theology. And all, all you need to do to see it is just turn on Christian radio sometime, which I know we actually don't have here. So, you, but you have the internet. Go find the Christian radio station on the internet. And you'll realize that the songs that you hear, are, are, they are incredibly individual, right? I will call upon your name for I am yours and you are mine. I was joking with Catherine the other day that we need to play a game. Is this a worship song or a middle school love poem? <laughs> the, message, the message that many of us need, because this is so prevalent, the message many Christians need to hear today is get over yourself. Jesus came to redeem his people. He came for his church. He came for his bride. And you know, the glory of the gospel is we are a part of that. But we aren't the sum of it. Individualized faith is, is, is firstly narcissistic. Secondly, an individual faith makes sin too small. When we come before God, we have to come in repentance. We have to confess our personal sins. We have to confess our individual sins of idolatry. But if it stops there, if our sin gets limited to just our individual dealings, if it gets limited to just our individual realm, if there's no category for corporate sin, if we can't conceive of an idea like we read in, in, in Joshua of corporate guilt, if we can't think of corporate guilt for the evil social structures in our community, even the evil structures in our church, we're missing out. The Bible talks about corporate sin all the time. If we can't, you know, when we see something in our neighborhood, right? If we, we see a, a young man get arrested for selling drugs and we say, you know, I have no responsibility in that. I didn't do that. That was his own decisions. If we can't, and meanwhile, while we see that, we are benefiting from a society that's inherently rigged in our favor, right? For many of us, we benefit from a society that favors the educated, that favors people with means, that favors people with both parents in their home, that favors people who are able to, to leave a parent at home during the day. So we're benefiting from this system, but then when we see the individual isolated incidents from it, we feel no responsibility. If our faith doesn't allow sin to be big enough to count that, we've got a problem. If our sin, if our faith prevents us from recognizing that, that it's not just individuals who need to be brought together in Christ, it's all things. It's the powers and the principalities. It's the broken systems that need to be healed. If our faith prevents us from seeing that, that when people are divided, 
along racial and educational and economic and political lines that if our faith prevents us from seeing that that is just as much contrary to the purpose of God as your, your porn habit or as, as your idolatry of success and money, if you don't realize that this is all something falling under God's plan of reconciliation, if you have an individualized view of sin, your view of sin is too small. And that means, thirdly, if you have that individual faith, if your view of sin is too small, then your view of salvation is too small as well. The gospel is good news for the sinner. But it's better than that. Because it's much bigger than that. Just try and read Colossians chapter 1 and make this about yourself. It says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Our salvation is much bigger than we've been taught. Jesus will redeem you, the individual. But when salvation comes, it's coming to you in the second person plural. It's coming to you all together. Unfortunately, we don't know how to think that way. We have this huge obstacle of our individualism blocking the way. But there is a way around it. And that's the third thing I want to show you this morning. How do we overcome this obstacle? John Stott, when he was defining Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, he said this. John Stott, by the way, was a another famous British pastor and a great theologian um, in the 20th century. He said, according to the New Testament, to be a Christian is in essence to be in Christ, one with him and with his people. To be a Christian is to be in Christ, one with him and his people. So how do we get there? How does that become a reality in our personalized, individualized Christian faith? Well, I don't think it's enough for me to just point out the problem. I don't think it's enough for me to just stand up and, and yell at you about it. I think we need something more. We need something powerful. We need something powerful if this is going to change. If our cultural blindness is going to be lifted. And I think the solution is, is right here in the beginning. In these couple of words. He says, grace to you and peace. Those two words, grace and peace, are the essence of the gospel. And they are two words that are going to come up over and over again in the next few weeks as we study this book. And those two words are there to remind us that we aren't dealing in philosophy here. My goal this morning isn't to present a couple different ways to view the world and to encourage you to turn away from the one bad way and now turn to this new, better philosophy. 
The gospel is the very power of God to bring grace and peace. The way Peter puts it, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter tells us that when we receive the mercy of God, the Spirit makes us one. When we experience the grace of God, there is a peace that comes between us. Peace always accompanies grace. Peace and grace, they go together. Grace, right? It's the message that that we all have to hear. That through Jesus, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. God does not bring down his wrath on us for our selfish individualism. God doesn't bring his wrath down on us for exalting ourselves as the focal point of the universe instead of him. He doesn't bring down his wrath on us for the ways that we are complicit in corporate sin. Why not? Because in Christ, he's brought peace. That's the narrative of scripture, that our self-exalting has put us at odds with God. That God, when he created the world, he created it to be good and he created us to live under his rule, worshiping him. But instead, from those very earliest moments, we chose to rebel and become our own rulers and become our own lords. And we started warring and striving with him, trying to build our own kingdoms instead of building his kingdom. But the good news of the gospel is in the midst of that war, he has made peace by the blood of the cross. On the cross, Jesus was cut off from the greatest unity this world has ever known, from the greatest corporate reality that has ever been seen. On the cross, God the Son was forsaken by God the Father. He was cut off and left alone so that we could all be made one together in Him. And so when Paul says, In Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. That's his normal greeting. But when he does that, he is declaring that there is a powerful reality that has taken place to make that sentence possible. That everyone who repents and looks to Jesus for their salvation is in him. That if the Holy Spirit is in you, you have a new identity. You're no longer your own but you belong to God and we belong to one another. The Christian's reality is this second person plural reality. And just listen, listen to how much different the famous verses of this book sound when you recognize that. Listen to how different these verses read when you recognize that you is plural here. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. For we are his workmanship. So that's my challenge. That's my invitation to you. 
as we head into the spring, as we open up this new book and we start to study it, I want to challenge you to start believing the gospel in the second person plural. I want to challenge you to start believing that we need each other if we're going to follow Jesus. I want to challenge you to repent and recognize that your maturity and your holiness is actually dependent on these people that are sitting around you. I want to challenge you to repent and believe that this church is not just some service that you prefer to go to on the occasional Sunday. But these are the people that God has united you to with him for his glory and your good. He has made you a part of a people. He has made you a part of a family. He has made us one in him. And if if that doesn't appeal to you, I don't know what to say. In this world of individuals, doesn't that speak to your heart just a little bit? In this world that can be so isolating and so lonely, that can be so filled with with shame and hiding, God has made a new reality. A new reality where you can be a part of a family and you don't have to hide. Where you can bear your soul where you can be honest about your struggle. And so that's that's my my challenge and, and that's my invitation. I want to invite you to that. If you have been living your life as an individual, if if you are are tired, if you feel alone, if you feel like you need a home, then hear this today. Hear Paul's invitation as he opens up this letter. Grace and peace from our Father. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the mystery of the gospel this mystery that in Christ you are reconciling all things to yourself, things in heaven and things on earth. Lord, I thank you for this mystery that you have approached your church as one. You've called us your body and you've told us that we see you clearly through one another. But Lord, we don't know how to think that way. We've lived our whole lives thinking mostly of ourselves. And so I pray, God, that you would expose us to our blindness, that you would show us our obstacles. And Lord, you would help us to do something really hard in this culture, to lean on others, to believe that we don't belong to ourselves, to defer to our brothers and sisters in Christ when we make our big decisions. Lord, to believe that you've brought these people here into our lives for a bigger purpose than to sit around for an hour or so on a Sunday morning. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.